So, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here on this Tuesday. Sure, it's raining outside, but it's dry in here. And we are grateful to um, have the opportunity to come together to study your word, to share this time of fellowship. We know that your Holy Spirit is with us. We know that your Holy Spirit is the one who called us here and formed us into this fellowship. And we pray that your Spirit would fill us with lots of energy and enthusiasm as we come back to the book of Acts, which really could be titled the book of the Holy Spirit. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so is there anything I would like to talk about before we plunge in back into Acts chapter 1? Okay, so here's work. I didn't see any hands, so I'm cool, right? So here, we're doing the book of Acts, and we did a full 11 verses two weeks ago. Yes, that was something. Yay us, 11 verses. So in the beginning, I'll just, I'll just, refresh, I'll just refresh it a bit. Um, though Acts and the four Gospels are all anonymous, we believe that Luke wrote both the Gospel and Acts, and they go together. They're two volumes of a single work, probably commissioned by a man named Theophilus, who was named at the beginning of the book of Acts. Luke approaches it as a good ancient historian would, using the sources that he can access and prioritizing, putting at the top of the list eyewitness testimony. That's the thing to remember about ancient historians. It was eyewitness testimony was the prime A++++ material or evidence about um, what happened in before. So Luke is putting this together and when he begins he tells us the story of Jesus's ascension. Jesus's ascension is told in a couple of different ways between the Gospels and the book of Acts. But this is where Jesus returns to the Father. We celebrate it on Ascension Sunday, which is an oft-neglected Sunday in the church, but it shouldn't be. It should be celebrated. Ascension, Jesus's ascension to the Father is all about the exaltation of Jesus, the lifting up of Jesus to be sitting at the right hand of God, the exaltation of Jesus to be no, no mere human, um, who has died and been resurrected, but indeed God himself. So, and when Jesus, as before he ascends to the Father, he gives his disciples who are gathered there a commission, uh, instructions. Typically the Matthew instructions are called the Great Commission, but it's the same thing here. It is like this. It is these concentric rings of mission that they are to be Jesus' witnesses, right? To proclaim what God has done in and through Jesus in Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What God has done. This is the biggest news there could be. It is still the biggest news that it could be, and it needs to be carried out to the world. It is like Paul wrote in Acts 10, how can anyone believe if they have not heard? And how can they hear if there isn't someone to proclaim it to them? 
And so Paul is on that mission. The apostles, the disciples who will soon be known as the apostles are on this mission. You and I are on this mission, right? It's what Arthur's been talking about for three Sundays now. So um, they do have a moment we talked about two weeks ago where they, you know, they're still confused. They, they ask Jesus, okay, so is the kingdom of God ready to come now? They want the whole thing all done, right? The Romans kicked out, the uh, temple cleansed and all of it. The, the, they still, which is understandable because everybody has a mindset, right? A way they approach things in the world. And if things are operating very differently than you expect them to, that's hard to deal with. It's hard, it, it's hard, and even the resurrection of Jesus has still left, left them in the place of saying, well, wow, what does this really, really mean? Especially when you consider that there was no expectation among the Jews that one person and one person only would be resurrected. The expectation of the Jews was that when God did God's big thing, ushering in the kingdom, when the day of the Lord arrived, those are all synonyms, everybody would be resurrected. Grandma would be out of the ground. So it's only Jesus. What does it mean? If you want to understand Paul, and some of his, in some of his writings, he's quite theological and quite intellectual, because what he is wrestling with and trying to help people grasp is the meaning and the implications of what God has done in and through Jesus. What does it mean for the world? So the disciples on this day, on the east side of the Mount of Olives, are just with Jesus and he gives them the instructions. Um, and then he returns to the Father after telling them to just go to Jerusalem and wait. Just wait. Because God has promised that another one would come after him. And that's kind of what, the, what those first 11 verses are, are about. It's, it's, it's about preparation for the disciples in terms of what is coming. And they are just to go to Jerusalem and wait for it to come. And as Jesus had told them, he's returned to the Father now. In the book of John, he says to them, you know, I, I'm going and you can't come. But God will send another one after me, a comforter, an advocate, a counselor. So that's where we are, waiting for this, this new, fresh manifestation of um, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, among these. I'm going to call them Jesus people for right now, okay? So... Any thoughts or questions about anything I just said? Trying to summarize 11 verses. I could probably have read them faster, but I don't know. <laughs> you wouldn't have had the same color, you know? Yes? The question is, where did the Jews get the idea that everybody would be resurrected. It had been the idea going at least back 200 years, <coughs> probably further. There are clues to it. 
that when God came and God put the world right, right? When God put the world right, that all the dead will be raised. Um, you can see hints of it in Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones. You can see it in Daniel chapter 12. Okay? So they have this expectation before Jesus arrives that when God does God's big thing, that all the dead will be resurrected. So, when Jesus is, I've often wondered what Peter thought come Monday morning after encountering the resurrected Jesus. I'm pretty sure. I, man, I'll ask Peter someday. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he expected Grandma to be out of the ground. That's what that funny little passage is all about in Matthew. In Matthew, there's this little bit of narrative theology where when um, where, where the tombs are open and the dead people come out and they're walking all over Jerusalem and so forth. That, that's a bit of narrative theology about Jesus inaugurating a resurrection of the dead. That's why Paul sees it. He's the first in the harvest. We will all follow. Yes, he's like the first apple picked. Then all the rest of the apples will be picked. Yet picked. Yes, it's been 2,000 years. But as Peter says, what is 2,000 years for God? A thousand years for us is the day for the Lord. Don't be in such a hurry. But it's still part, we, li we, we live in the middle of this harvest. And, but that is something the disciples, you can't expect them to understand all of that yet. I mean, we have trouble understanding it. But you, you can see in Paul's letters that Paul is wrestling with that. What does it mean? What does it mean? Right? For the world, not just for them, but for the world. Because this is a big public world event. This is not just for the Jews. It's not just for the disciples. This is for the world because that's, as we've been talking about on Sunday, that is the Missio Dei. That is God's mission to rescue humanity and renew and restore creation. Just get used to using those kinds of words. And they'll help you get out of these little bitty bits that don't really fit together too well in your minds and hearts. You've got, you got to see what God is about in this. Because he makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that yes, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. It's huge. It's everything. It's everything. It's everything. So, anything else? All right, so look at, we'll just look at chapter 12. So, because they have now gone back to Jerusalem. I'm sorry, of course, yes, thank you. Verse 12, I am, I am barely qualified for this anymore. I'm like a blind guy driving a UPS truck. Okay, no telling where it's gonna end up. So we are in chapter one of Acts. Um, verse 12, uh, I'll point out one thing I didn't mention. If you look at verse 11, you see what that is? Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. It's a promise of Jesus' return. Jesus' return is something around which there has never been any significant heresy. It is simply too plainly written throughout the New Testament 
that we await Jesus' return and the consummation of God's kingdom in a world that is renewed and restored. Revelation 21 and 22. So, verse 12. Then, after all of this has happened, and it's happened on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. A Sabbath day walk from the city. Well, that's a funny way to put it. A Sabbath day walk from the city. In the Jewish understanding of the law at this time, you were limited to how far you could walk on the Sabbath. Because the Mount of Olives is actually very close to the action. I mean, I, we, some of you have been there. I've been there. You could, I'm not saying I could throw a rock from the Mount of Olives, you know, into the city, but I saw a video one day of a gal who threw one of those, like, little footballs or towels up into the stands. That girl had an arm, let me tell you. That thing went on forever. Maybe she could do that. Um, but they're, they're actually real close to the city, but there's a limit to how far you could walk. So that's why Luke writes a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Now this is about six weeks or so after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. So, is this the same room in which they celebrated the Last Supper? I would not assume that just because it says upstairs. You know, during Passover, people, the city's packed, and, and you're supposed to celebrate that Passover meal inside the city walls, so people are just finding any space they can. Um, so I, I just, you know, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. I'll ask Peter that question too. We'll make that number two that day. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Now, those people present were Peter, John, okay, that's, that's um, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas son of James. Now the names are all like, wow, it gets confusing because the case is often made that, that the names are a little bit fluid from gospel to gospel. Some people say, well, the names across the gospels add up to more than they should. I wouldn't get caught up in all of that. They're, they're just, they're not a lot of names to go around. They didn't have a lot of names. They didn't need a lot of names. Everybody grew up in a village. They tended to stay in the village. You know, we got to have first name, last name, middle initial, um, social security number, cell number, address, zip code. Don't just give me five digits in your zip code. Give me nine. But for them, Jesus of Nazareth was about all you needed. If you needed more, he was Jesus, son of Joseph of Nazareth. That would pretty much seal the deal. But the names Jesus, actually Yeshua, James, they just don't have lots of names, and that gives rise to potential confusion that, I don't know, doesn't matter too much. So um, anyway, 
Now, so he lists, he lists disciples for us. Um, how many are there? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Well, let me tell you, that is the right number. And why is 11 the correct number? Why isn't it 12? Bingo! Why were there 12? Capital T, 12. The 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus has formed around himself the tribes of Israel. It was, 10, it was 12 tribes, and so the significant number around disciples is 12. Did Jesus have other disciples, other people who followed him, other people who helped out, other people who contributed, other people who learned? Yes, but there are the capital T, 12. And it's the number that matters in a way most of all. So verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Hmm, that's not surprising, is it? When you look at the portrait of the early Christians, they prayed a lot, explicitly. They prayed. Prayer is how you are connected to God and to others. When you pray to God on the behalf of another person for a friend of yours to be made well or to have a safe trip, you are not only connecting to God, but you are connected to that other person, right? You've taken two-way relationships and formed them into triangles, which are a lot stronger, with God at the center. Prayer is how you communicate. There's no right way to pray. You can memorize some prayers. We all do. We all memorize the Lord's Prayer. Other prayers you can come from your heart. Christians have written many beautiful prayers over time. The prayer of St. Francis of Assisi that we used a lot in the last couple of years. Um, I have a book at home, Great, Great Prayers of the Christian Faith, written by Christians over the centuries. I have a prayer book, a book of common prayer. However you approach it, don't be intimidated. Just pray. Richard Foster, who, is, who um, wrote a book about Christian disciplines and about prayer, said, look, here, here's how he viewed it. He said, look, it, you are invited to come in and sit beside the person in this life who loved you the most and just to sit down and to talk and to share your heart with this person that you know loves you. You know, for me and my imagery, um, uh, that was like always my granddad. Going and sitting with my granddad, you know, in his little room, and we would just talk um, between innings. <laughs> between, he was a big baseball fan, between innings. In fact, I'll tell you one thing about my granddad. He, he had a mute button. Before anybody knew what a mute button was, he hated commercials so badly that he had some guy come to the house, this is like in the 60s, and rig up a little wire from the back of the TV across the room to this little switch that he had on his armchair where he could switch that sound off, baby. Then switch, yeah, yeah, pretty good idea. It kind of caught on, didn't it? So, um, yeah, trendsetter. So, so, 
just I, I know there are people I hear stories of people who 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 are af they're just afraid to pray don't be afraid some of us have been caught in prayer competitions I grew up Episcopal we didn't really have prayer competitions in the Episcopal Church but I found that when I went to sometimes church with my Baptist friends they would form a circle and then they would start praying one after the other around the circle. And I always hoped that it would be, they would go clockwise and I would get to be last because it freaked me out. I, I was an Episcopalian, you don't do that in the Episcopal church. But eventually I learned that was just silly on my part. I didn't need to spend the whole time wondering what I was going to say. You just pray your heart. And if, if you spend time in the book of Psalms and let the Psalms shape your heart and even shape your language, you will be, your, your prayer life will be deeply enriched. Deeply enriched. So anyway. So anyway, so they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women Women, as I've been talking about in my Sunday class, women play a significant role in the Gospels. Women in Luke chapter 8 are the benefactors of Jesus and the disciples. They have to have a means of support for this ministry of two and a half years or something. And how, do, where do they, how are they supported? In Luke 8, we find out that there are women including Mary Magdalene, who um, had been exercised of seven demons, and other women who were contributing to this ministry out of their pocketbooks. They were women of some means, and they put that to work in Jesus' ministry. And so now there are women gathered there. The only name that we get because of her central role in Jesus's life and in this story of the good news is Mary. Do I think Mary Magdalene, Magdalene was there? Yeah, she's not named, but I think she was there. I don't know why she wouldn't have been there. As I said on, on Sunday in my 11 o'clock class, she was, she was really like the first apostle. She is the one whom Jesus chose to, have, to go and announce to the disciples that he was risen. John chapter 20. So, the women and Mary, um, mother of Jesus. Not the, just bear in mind, this is only six weeks after watching her son get beaten and flogged nearly to death and then crucified and dying. Even though he was resurrected, it doesn't wipe that pain away, does it? I don't think so that pain would still be there. As Simeon said to her when Jesus, not long after Jesus' birth, there will be a sword that pierces your soul. And sure enough, it did. And then we find out there are Jesus' brothers there. Now these are half-brothers because as Protestants, we are free to take the simplest approach to this, that 
After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph went on to share a married life and to have other children, and thus making Jesus' brothers his half-brothers. If you are a Roman Catholic, you don't hold to that because you insist that Mary was eternally a virgin, so, which would be a problem if, you wanted to, if she wanted to have kids. So for the Roman Catholic Church, Jesus' brothers and sisters are step-brothers and sisters, and Joseph was married and then widowed and then engaged to Mary. All complicated, none of it in Scripture. Take the easiest approach. Generally, a good approach is to take, to take the approach which explains the most amount of the data in the simplest way possible. And so, sure, these are his half-brothers. What, what's interesting is, to the extent that we know this, his brothers were not followers of Jesus during his lifetime, before his crucifixion. It's only afterwards. And one of his half-brothers, James, becomes a leader of the community in Jerusalem and is martyred in about 63 A.D. And is the writer of the New Testament book writing called James. So, the whole array, they're all gathered there. Disciples, women, family, Mary. They're all just waiting. They're waiting because Jesus told them to go there and just wait. But there is one piece of business to which they must attend. Verse 15, so before I go on, any thoughts or questions that I'm giving rise to? Yes. Yes. When I compare these simple sounding names, yes. James, Paul, Richard, John, Peter, James, Andrew, Philip. Yeah, when I go over to Matthew one and look at those alphabetic names, did something happen that simplified the names, or were these names simplified from something else? The names start in Hebrew or Aramaic, they pass through the Greek, and then they come to English. So when little Jesus is out playing in the schoolyard, nobody's hollering out, hey Jesus, come in, recess is over. No, it's Yeshua, which is also Joshua. So that, that's, that's what goes on in, 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 these, in these names. That's the simplest way to sort of get at that question that you end up with these, these shorter names, okay? Anything else? Verse 15, in those days Peter stood up among the believers. How many, how many are there? 120. 120 Jesus folk gathered together, and what are they doing? They're waiting. Are you, are you good at waiting? I'm terrible at waiting. I'd be probably going, tick-tock, tick-tock, let's go, what's happening? We've got to get the show on the road. But no, they're just waiting. And Peter says, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. 
He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. These Christians will see in the Old Testament numerous signposts to the key events in Jesus' life, in his ministry, and even to Judas' betrayal. And in verse 18, we get a little parens that tells you a little bit about what happened to Judas. With the payment he, Judas Iscariot, received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all of his intestines spilled out. Yeah, that's graphic, isn't it? Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language. This would be Aramaic, which was the language of the street. It's the language everybody spoke. They weren't running around the street speaking Hebrew. They're, Hebrew and Aramaic are related. They're both Semitic languages, but they're not the same. It's like Italian and Spanish. Maybe not even as close as Italian and Spanish, but anyway. So, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. And if you were to go to Jerusalem now, and you ask your guide or your cab driver to take you to the field that is remembered as the place where Joshua fell headlong and his guts spilled out and he hung himself and all that stuff that's around the story of Judas, he could take you there. There's a place, this is, this is the field of Judas. It's just south of the city of David on the southern side of the valley of um, Gehana. So, Judas... Yes. It doesn't say that he didn't hang himself. It just says he fell. Why did he fall? Did he fall because he hung himself? I don't know. But anyway, he fell headlong, which is, his body burst open. It's just graphic. Just to, what, is it, what do I get out of this? This is making sure I know that he was dead, dead, and dead. Right? This is Luke telling me, yeah. Yeah, this is what people tell me. This was nasty. He's dead. He's really dead. He ain't coming back. He's dead. Verse 20. For, Peter said, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. So, Peter goes into the book of Psalms and he calls up two little portions in the book of Psalms. And one is about this field being deserted and not lived in. The more significant is the second, which is about the replacement of Judas. And why does Judas need to be replaced? So they get back to capital T, 12. 11 won't do. They need a 12th. So Peter goes on. Therefore, this is Peter speaking in verse 21. Okay, we cool? Anything, anybody? I'm always scanning the room. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men, now pay attention to this part, who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism, all the way back, 
right at the beginning of the beginning of the beginning to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, the ascension. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So, what do you, what, we learn a couple of things in this verse. If you doubted it before, now you know that there were others, other men in particular, who followed Jesus for the entire length of his ministry. It's not just the capital T12, because they're going to go into this larger group of disciples, and they're going to, and God is going to choose one of them to be the replacement for Judas. Because he has to get to the 12. So, wow, okay. All that time. And the sentence for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection is a little signpost to the fact that these people who have been called disciples, which is, what, a, what, the word, what does the word disciple mean? We usually assume it means a follower or maybe a student, but it, I think it has a more particular meaning. I think the best synonym is apprentice. Apprentice. That when you begin striving to be an ever better disciple of Jesus, you are beginning to strive to be ever more Christ-like. Just like a young man or a young woman who apprentices with a master plumber and is going to follow them around and not only learn how to plumb, but also how to put a business together, how you treat customers, all the different pieces. They're apprenticing themselves to a master plumber. That's, that, that's the best way to think about a disciple. Not just simply like sitting down in a classroom or something. No, it's about living, about becoming more Christ-like in how you think and how you live and how you understand the world around you. So they're going to choose from this group um, a twelfth because they want the complete set of apostles because the disciples are going to start being called apostles. And the difference is that apostolos in the Greek means one who is sent forth. One who is sent forth. So, so the apostles are going to be sent forth to do what? To be witnesses to Jesus, to preach the gospel. They got to get the word out. They got to get the word out. Now, just as the word, just as the word disciple encompasses much more than the twelve, even the word apostle will encompass more than the twelve. And there will, they will meet, you will meet in the book of Acts, other evangelists who are out carrying the word out. In the book of Romans, you meet a woman named Junia who is said is prominent among the apostles. So there's other action going on, right? The book of Acts, as I said two weeks ago, is just part of what's happening. There's a lot more that's happening all around the eastern end of the Roman Empire, but this story concentrates on Peter first and then on Paul. So, 
Yes. This might sound like heresy. Heresy. No, I don't know how it's supposed to be taken. Um, It'll be taken well. We have Judas. We have a master plan. Jesus goes in to Jerusalem knowing that he's not going to come out alive. What? Jesus? Jesus goes into Jerusalem knowing he's not going to come back believe it a lot. He knows he's going to meet a bad end. He knows he's going to be crucified. So somebody has to start the ball rolling. And Judas is part of that master plan. So is it his fault? Or is it part of a master plan that he was selected to be the one? Okay, so I'm being asked about Judas and is he part of a master plan and thus really um, instrumental in accomplishing God's salvation. I think it depends on how much you think God in detail plans everything. And I think generally we would benefit, though many of us were sort of growing up hearing that God plans everything out, everything's part of God's plan. I think that runs into so many hurdles that I don't really take that path. Jesus, it doesn't take, <laughs> it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know what will happen to Jesus. There's plenty of precedent for those who are seen as standing up to the powers of Rome. So when Jesus rides into the city, wrapping around him every symbol of Messiah, which is a royal term, a kingly term, it doesn't, it's no surprise then that boom, he runs right into the power of Rome in the person of Pontius Pilate and the priest because Jesus spent a lot of time um, declaring that the priests had been taking the people away from God. For Judas, you can't make him an innocent. He betrayed Jesus. You can't say, even if you think that's what you get out of the Greek, he can't say, the devil made me do it. I, none of us can say that. We, if, we, if we thought that when we did some terrible thing, that we could simply say, well, the devil made me do it, sure, sparing us responsibility for it, right? Because then I'm just a puppet. Um, I think it's a, it, it's a terrible non-biblical, non-New Testament way to see things. There's no, I'm not aware of a single person in the New Testament who is taken over by Satan or forced to do something. What does Satan do? Satan tempts. Um, what, does, what does Satan do with Jesus in the wilderness? Satan tempts. In the portrayal of Satan in the movie Young Messiah, what does Satan do? He looks, he looks kind of like Robert Downey Jr. in a robe, but what does he do? He whispers. He whispers in people's ears that, gosh, if you're just a little less faithful to God, you can get what you want, right? So I think that is a much truer biblical way to understand God's work, and Judas does betray Jesus and he does suffer the consequences. Now what are those consequences for Judas? 
Judas commits suicide, right? Why does he commit suicide? He cannot stand the horror of what he has done. Have you ever seen Jesus Christ Superstar? Jesus Christ Superstar is not about Jesus. He's not the main character in Jesus Christ Superstar. Judas is the main character in Jesus Christ Superstar. It begins with Judas. It ends with Judas. Judas commits suicide because he can't live with what he has done. And what he has done is to betray his Lord and Savior. Whatever reasons he might have, just don't make him a robot. And... Um, Did he have, did he play a part in this story that would result in God's salvation of the world? Yes, but it's, you could say that about many people at many points along the way, not, not just, not just Judas. So anyway, that wasn't, that's not heresy. That comes up, that comes up every time I talk about Judas, every time, because it's a puzzlement to us, the story of Judas. And you, you know, yeah. So, any follow-up to that? Don? No? Okay. We're cool? Yeah, of course we're cool. Okay, so we got to find these two men. Why are they going to be men? You know the answer to that. It's a patriarchal world. Utterly and completely. You have to be shocked and surprised pleasantly every time you encounter a woman who who smashes a bit of that world, but, phew, yeah. <clears throat> Verse 23, so they nominated two men out of the group of disciples who have been with Jesus from the beginning and are not part of the twelve. Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they did what? They, of course they did. They prayed. Can't pray too much. Then they prayed. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Boy, that's a true statement. You know, over the years, on a few occasions, I had people come up to me and they say, well, I can't pray to God about this because I don't want him to know. <laughs> I'm going, wow. <laughs> So that's why I say, let's sit down and talk for a few minutes, okay? <laughs> of course, God knows our heart. Here's the thing, you see, God knows our heart better than we do. We don't really know our hearts very well. Not really, you might think you do, but it gets confused with all kinds of things, including indigestion, so. <laughs> but God sorts all that out. God knows what the true desires of our heart are. Michael Novak one time talked about this. He said, look, there is the self, ourselves, our values, our desires that we show the world. You come here, this is Scott, this is Don, this is Patty, this is Mary and all. This is what we show the world. And if the world asks us a question about, you know, do you agree with this? What do you do about this? We have answers. 
But everybody, if they go into their own closet, would probably admit that that public face is not the whole story about what goes on in our mind and hearts. And then to the third level, if there was like some little alien that follows us, that followed us around for two or three or four weeks and observed what we really did, that would get the closest to the true desires of our hearts. The true desires of our hearts. But God knows what the true desires of our hearts are. God knows that there's a darkness in our hearts, that our hearts are pointed to some degree in the wrong direction, like the difference between magnetic north and true north. And that part of becoming more Christ-like is to get your heart oriented to true north with God's help. So God, they say, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic, there's the word, apostolos, apostolic ministry, this ministry to go out and carry the word, because it's time. Until this point in Scripture, it's a very Jewish story, is it not? All the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the Gospels, it's a very Jewish story. But there's this promise hanging out there, made to Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. In the prophets, all the nations will stream to Mount Zion, all, 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 all. And now the time has come to make that all a reality. And these people are the ones that God is going to use to do that, empowered by God's Holy Spirit. And you and I are still in it with them. These folks might have lived almost 2,000 years ago, but we are part of their story, or they are part of ours, however we want to think about it. So, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Cast lots. What does that mean? They pulled out the dice and rolled it. Pulled out straws, short straw, that kind of thing. Well, why do they throw dice to figure out who's going to replace Judas? Why didn't they go through a very careful evaluation? studying all of the pros and cons and strengths and weaknesses of the various candidates in order to determine which would seem to be more suited and more desirous of this particular job. <laughs> they don't do any of that. They just roll the dice. Why do they roll the dice? Because God's going to make the dice come out the way God wants. That's their belief. That's their understanding that God is going to make this choice. They leave the choice up to God by rolling the dice. The same thing happens in the Old Testament. I recently took my, well, you did this with me. This was on Tuesdays. Samuel. How many times did somebody go, did David go to God with a question and cast like 
whether it be a yes answer or a no answer. And then he used the uh, various little devices that they had, the EFOD and a couple other things that have funny names. And they like flip a coin in our way we do it today, and that would be God's answer. So here it is, they throw dice, they draw short straws, whatever it is, they leave, they're leaving the choice up to God because their understanding of the cosmos, of God and of themselves, that God is the first cause of all things. Why does it, why, for them, if they were here today, why is it raining today? Because God made it rain. Is it raining because there's like this low pressure system with a cold front that moved through, raising the air behind it and compressing the particles that are falling through these layers and they're falling to earth as rain and aren't we glad? No, they don't, they don't have answers to most of the things that they experience in life other than to say, God did it. Or if you're a pagan, non-Jewish, non-Israelite, non-Christian, that the, that, that the gods did this. I remember listening to a lecture from N.T. Wright one time, and he said, you know, for people in this world, people in Rome, they would go to the temple to one of, one of the gods that they preferred, and they would make, uh, they would make a, a, an offering. And they would pray to this god that the wind would come from would blow west to east because they were like setting sail eastward. And what they hoped was that there wasn't somebody who came behind them and made a larger offering for the wind to blow from the west to the east. And okay, and then I remember there was a woman from our church, she, she passed away a long time ago from cancer, but she went to India on a trip. And she came back and she said, oh, there were so many gods and goddesses and they made offerings for so many parts of their, they were just anxiety ridden all the time about being caught between all these gods and goddesses. That, that's really the world that these people are living in. The Jews have their part of it sort of carved out because they have this weird belief that there's only one God and the weirder belief that this one God chose them. But nonetheless, they too. Um, give me, I'll give you another example. Out at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls came from, to hold a leadership office in Qumran, you couldn't have had some kind of accident, an injury. You had to, almost like you had to be free of, free of blemish or defect. Well, why is it that if you had suffered an injury, you couldn't hold an office out at Qumran with the Essenes? Because if you had, it meant that you, God was punishing you in some way for something you had done. Do any of us think that way now? Should we think that way now? No, I don't think we should. Yes. Oh, I, oh, I know. And it is making so difficult to let that go. Thank goodness for Western Germany. 
So, so let me, yes, thank, thank God for Wesley and others who, who saw that when, because in light of the New Testament, the place you begin in understanding who God is is God's love, not God's sovereignty. Because the place where Calvinism, Calvin thought that you know, the slightest wind was ordained by God, the place we, that always that stopped for me had to be at some place like Auschwitz. You, would, you could never convince me that Auschwitz was part of God's plan. Never. I don't care what you try to tell me in light of Jesus. That just can't be. Can't be, can't be, can't be. There isn't some larger plan of God's that, that the murder of six million Jews fits into. It's just a horrible wrong that we committed against others. Not we, but good German Lutherans among those who did. So it's, you know, I, I just think we live in, we are blessed to know much more about the glories of God's creation. And we do know about low pressure systems and high pressure systems and these things. And that doesn't diminish in any way our appreciation of the work of God in this world. And I see God working in large ways and small ways every day. Don't just look for God in things that you see as miracles. Look for the God moments. Look for the small ones. Don't assume that. Don't assume everything's just luck or coincidence or something. I'm married to Patty because God brought us together. I'm convinced of that. You couldn't unconvince me of that, given the strange nature of our story. Right, dear? <laughs> Is she saying? Is she looking at me? Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so you, you have to decide. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of Calvinist churches in the Metroplex. Some of them are very popular and very large. I just think they are mis misguided. They start at the wrong, the theology starts at the wrong place. It's like Jacob, Jacob, Jacob Orr, no, James Orr, a Scottish Presbyterian, said in the 19th century. Calvin's problem was that he elevated God's sovereignty over God's love. So don't do that. We know that God is love. 1 John, five places, the simple construction, God is love, because God is a loving community of three in God's unity, He's triune. God is triune. And so if you start with God's love, you are going to end up at a whole, much, whole lot better place, I think, theologically. And that is a gift from Wesley and other Arminian, there's a word for you, Arminian theologians from the time of the Reformation. Well, how did I do all, get on to all that stuff? Oh my goodness. Okay, anything else? Okay, well, now, boom, guess where we are now? Yeah, they've been waiting. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting that we are now at the festival of Pentecost. There are three major festivals in the Jewish religion. One is Passover, one is Pentecost. Pentecost is a first harvest festival and then tabernacles or booths, which is a late harvest festival in typically, let's say November. 
when the day of Pentecost came, chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. How many? No. 120. <laughs> tricky, huh? Yeah. Yeah, tricky. Yeah. But it'd be like my high school history teacher always asked the questions that were tricky. They were all together in one place. And suddenly, a sound like. Notice that word like. It's a sound like. What does that word like convey? That, that, that you're striving for a metaphor that describes what you're appearing, uh, um, experiencing. It's a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. It doesn't mean the shutters are coming off the windows. It's a sound like. What's it sound like in the room? A violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So it's, it's loud now. And the sound is moving around the room where these 120 people are gathered. So it's a pretty good sized room. Maybe one about this size. They saw what seemed to be tongues. What seemed, this is, this is all the way through the prophets. They're always like, it's, it's like this. It seemed to be this. What seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Okay? So typically, that's why a flame of some kind is associated with the day of Pentecost. There's a lot of old art, a lot of stained glass. It has um, disciples gathered. Mary's usually in the center. Um, a flame on, little flame on top of their heads. These tongues of fire. What are they signifying? What's happening? All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit, capital S, enabled them. So, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. I don't know that we're going to get back to the text here for a minute, but let's talk about the Holy Spirit. So, first of all, we proclaim a triune God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons in the unity of God. Right? When Jesus gives the Great Commission to Matthew, what does he say? Go out and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is fully and completely God as much as Jesus is fully and completely God, as much as the Father is fully and completely God, though none of them are all of God. And we soon lose our way in the language, so don't get, you know, there you go. This Holy Spirit is God. God's empowering presence with these people that has come to this room that day with the sound of a violent wind and with tongues of fire going from person to person to person to person. The Holy Spirit is a who. W-H-O. Not a what. You can lie to the Holy Spirit. You can grieve to the Holy Spirit. You can interact with the Holy Spirit in the way that you would interact with other persons. 
but we are not to refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. We're not talking the force from Star Wars or anything close. We're not talking that something that uh, someone like or something like electricity that you would plug into. The Holy Spirit is a someone, not a something. And if sometimes our language slips, well then do better next time. It's who, 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 who. The Holy Spirit, God present with us, is the driving force, the driving actor. I'll use that word, the driving actor in the, in the entire book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is, that's why I said in my opening prayer, you could call it the book of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is arriving. Does that mean that God has not been present with his people before the Holy Spirit? Does it mean God's Holy Spirit was not present with people in the days of the Old Testament? No, it does not mean that. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. So when there is a present manifestation of God, it is, it is the Spirit of God. Um, in the book of Isaiah 64, it's explicitly the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Shekinah in the Old Testament, the presence of God. Sometimes as Lady Wisdom. But the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is God's empowering presence with us. What is happening on Pentecost is that God's Spirit, God's Holy Spirit is returning from a time from a time away. When the Israelites had the tabernacle and then they had the temple and they had the Ark of the Covenant and they had the, the whole deal, that was where God dwelt with them. Ezekiel has a vision um, before the Babylonian invasion of, of, this, of God rising up out of the temple and heading east toward Babylon. And the question is, does the Spirit of God return? To the temple when the Jews begin to return and the temple is rebuilt stage by stage by stage by stage. And I'm with those who say no. Because this, this is, this is the Spirit of God returning, returning to the temple. Except that now, what is the temple? This is getting way ahead of ourselves. This is going to Paul, but in Paul's letters, the temple is what? Some, it's, the temple is, first of all, each individual believer, because we're told in the letters of Paul that, you know, 
our bodies are temples, and that's not a reference to you know, like showing up at 24-hour fitness. Um, but in a larger, uh, Paul also says that the church, the body of Christ, is God's temple. So, but Ezekiel has this vision of the presence of God leaving and heading into Jerusalem. And I'm with those who think, yes, the best way to understand what's happening now is the Spirit of God is returning on this day of Pentecost. Except that the temple is no longer going to be a temple of marble. It's going to be a temple comprised of people, individual believers, and then, and then the body of Christ. So, throw up the questions about all of that. Yes, sir. Ma'am. Hey, I just saw the hand go up. I think that's, for me, and I think for the Old Testament, there's enough references there to say yes. Who, who else is it? Now, of course, Paul, in one of his letters, refers to the Holy Spirit as what? The Spirit of Christ. Because why? How many gods do we believe in? Three? One. See? And then your mind begins to go, right? That's okay. That's okay. So, sure. And except they didn't always use the word spirit or Holy Spirit. Most often didn't. But Shekinah is one that they did use, the presence of God. And I just think if you see, if you understand the spirit to be the presence of God, well, it's it's when Jesus is going, is about to be crucified, what does he say? I'm going, but God is going to send another one after me. Right? The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Counselor, the Advocate. If I didn't think that the Holy Spirit was God's empowering presence in the days of old, before Jesus, then what am I left with? Why would I think that? If the Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence after Jesus, why is it the Holy Spirit God's empowering presence before Jesus? So, and I think there are enough references in the Old Testament to the presence of God, even referring to, to um, the Spirit as the Holy Spirit in the book of Isaiah, to to, to see it that way. So to me, then the, the scripture sort of is with what seems to make sense to me. Those don't always have to match, and when they don't match, you need to kind of go back to scripture and see if maybe you're not thinking too well. But, but the Spirit is God present with us. So when we come back next week, we're going to see the work of the Spirit, God, in these people, in Peter, and the others in forming this church and launching launching the body of Christ, launching this, the, this project. Um, 
in, in, when, I, when I teach the Bible, I taught Acts 1, 2, and 3 last Thursday morning, and I'm going to teach Acts 4, 5, and 6 on, on an upcoming date. And this is Act 5, because Act 1 is creation, Act 2 is the fall, Act 3 is Israel, Act 4 is Jesus, Act 5 is the church, Act 6 is Jesus returns and the creation is renewed. We are still in Act 5. So we are, we are in, in essence, the book of Acts. Their work is our work. The Holy Spirit empowers us. The Holy Spirit sends us out. The Holy Spirit calls us here. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we just need to be grateful. So anyway, that's where we are today. So would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we head out of here today, back out into the rain or whatever awaits us, we just pray that your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, indeed the Spirit of Christ, will fill us with a strong desire to read and to study your word, to come to Scripture, so that we might know better who you are and who we are and find answers to so many questions, the deepest questions of, of life, because they're there. And we are grateful for the opportunity to come together like this and, and study the Bible and make our way through these ancient writings um, so that we can indeed come to know you um, and come to be better and truer disciples of Jesus. All this we pray in his name. Amen. Okay. Adios.